Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I've got another great Disrupting Japan Select show for you today. Now, I first released this episode about Uber's failed Japan market entry strategy over two years ago, but it remains one of Disrupting Japan's most downloaded episodes. In fact, a number of people have told me that it's the best advice they've ever heard about doing business in Japan. I deeply appreciate the praise, and so it seems like this is a topic worth revisiting. And over the past few years, things have played out largely as predicted for Uber and Airbnb. But there have been a few interesting twists, particularly on the Airbnb side. So I'll give you an update after the show. Please enjoy. Once again, I've got a special show for you today. There will be no guests, no wine, no playful banter with someone speaking English as a second language. Today, it's just you and me. For the next 20 minutes, I'll be whispering in your ear about something I consider very important, but that not enough people are really talking about. You know, a lot has been written. About why Uber is failing so disastrously in Asia in general and in Japan in particular. Most authors cite the very different state of the taxi industry here, and there's certainly some truth to that. Taxis in Japan are clean, safe, affordable, and easy to hail. But that analysis misses a larger, and I think a more important truth. You see, Uber and Airbnb as well. Represent a very new kind of startup. One whose defining characteristic, the very thing that makes them what they are, has little to do with technology and ensures that they will always struggle in Asia. Don't get me wrong, Japan and Asian market entry is challenging even for the best companies. I've been involved with a number of market entries. And the process is sometimes very much like the chaos and uncertainty of running a startup. You see, if you are ready to expand overseas, you've clearly nailed the product market fit and figured out how to scale your sales process. However, until you start selling in a new market, you're never really sure what positioning will resonate or which strategies will be effective. You might be up against entrenched competitors. You might lack the word of mouth reputation or partnership ecosystem that was critical to your success at home. The overwhelming pain you're solving for your existing clients might not even be viewed as a very big deal in Japan. And on the other hand, a minor feature barely mentioned in your marketing collateral might be seen as a game changer. For example, I ran the market entry for a San Francisco company that built its reputation and market. On helping developers deploy their product quickly and innovate more rapidly. And we had the hard data to back up those claims. But the Japanese prospects were not particularly impressed. However, when we started focusing on how that product also decreased downtime and greatly improved how reliable their software was perceived by their users, we began to sell like crazy. These challenges are common to all companies, not just startups. But Uber and Airbnb are different. They're special. 
Examining why they are struggling in Japan illustrates a very important difference in how disruption takes place in America and how it takes place in Japan. Okay, other than the insane valuations and phenomenal growth, what's so special about Uber and Airbnb? Quite a lot, really. But today, I want to focus on a specific aspect of their business model. Putting aside all the feel-good fluff of the absurdly named sharing economy, both Uber and Airbnb's business models revolve around a kind of legal arbitrage. Don't get me wrong. I think both Uber and Airbnb are great services, and I've used both of them. However, the only reason they can offer their services at the prices they do, the only reason they have such a powerful price advantage at all, is because they choose to ignore a great many laws and regulations. Airbnb hosts routinely ignore zoning laws, hotel taxes, safety regulations, and insurance requirements. Uber does not require its drivers to have taxi or chauffeur licenses, obtain commercial insurance, pass commercial safety inspections, or abide by dozens of other laws and regulations. Now, many of these laws and regulations might be outdated and unnecessary, or even harmful to the economy as a whole. That's not what I'm here to talk about today. No. The key point is understanding without any kind of moral judgment, understanding that the bulk of their competitive advantage comes from the fact that their competition must spend a great deal of money to obey laws and regulations that Uber and Airbnb ignore. In fact, when you sign up for Uber and click on their end-user license agreement, you explicitly agree and accept that Uber drivers may not be in full compliance with local laws and regulations. And this brings us to another exceptionally clever part of their model. The bulk of the rule-breaking is not actually done by the companies themselves, but by the Uber drivers and the Airbnb hosts. These people are not employees, so Uber and Airbnb are not legally responsible for their actions. Legally speaking, Uber and Airbnb are just platforms, and hosts and drivers are operating independently and of their own volition. From a common-sense point of view, that's obviously nonsense. But this legal fiction provides both business models with an effective legal shield. The authorities can't easily come after the companies because they are not directly in violation of the law. And targeting individual drivers or hosts for enforcement is disastrous politically. Early on, several cities did make a few high-profile arrests of Uber drivers, and the backlash was swift and severe. Uber was seen as an innovator, and the government was seen as both anti-progress and anti-citizen by arresting regular middle-class citizens just trying to make ends meet. That's great! I hear our American listeners cheering. Not playing by the rules is the heart of disruption. Well, maybe so. But I'm going to ask you to put that opinion aside for just a moment and to suspend that belief for just a little while because the unwillingness to question that belief is what's killing Uber in Japan. Now, our non-American listeners 
will doubtless assume that a new company whose business requires breaking the law will either be shut down quickly or will have to operate outside of the mainstream. But here is where this business model becomes very American. And this is the part that requires far more capital than building and marketing a technology platform. Both Uber and Airbnb spend a lot of money working to get the laws changed and legitimize their businesses. And don't get me wrong, that's perfectly normal corporate behavior, even for new companies. Tesla is now in a multi-state fight trying to overturn laws that require it to sell through local dealers, and Amazon fought tooth and nail to prevent sales taxes from being collected on out-of-state purchases. Companies around the world lobby to get unfavorable laws changed. The difference here, however, is that the laws in question are those that determine the legality of Uber and Airbnb's very business model. Grace Hopper once said, It's easier to ask forgiveness than to get permission. Words that any founder should live by and have been at the heart of Uber and Airbnb's expansion plans. Early on, the city and local governments that regulate the taxi and hotel industries may not have been happy with what these companies were doing, but it wasn't exactly a problem that many people were demanding be addressed. And besides, bureaucracy moves slowly. While the legislators and regulators were trying to schedule their next meeting, Uber and Airbnb raced ahead. Today, these companies have hired hundreds of lobbyists and spend tens of millions of dollars pressuring legislators into changing the laws. And they've also launched massive and effective publicity campaigns. Legislators that opposed Uber were portrayed as corrupt and in collusion with the taxi companies, or wanting to protect their donations from special interests in order to take money out of the pockets of hardworking homeowners who are just trying to make ends meet. Airbnb in particular has been very effective at mobilizing and coordinating its hosts to put pressure on regulators. They make sure that hundreds of people show up for hearings about the relevant laws. The PR strategy has also been effective in the U.S. The media largely frames this as a battle between innovative and visionary companies who want to create jobs versus backward and corrupt politicians who want to enrich their cronies by protecting the status quo. Come to think of it, the widespread adoption of the term sharing economy to describe these companies shows how incredibly effective these efforts have been. Make no mistake, however, this is a battle. Both Uber and Airbnb are fighting dozens of court cases. Those regulators and bureaucrats may be slow, but they do get to you eventually. At this point, however, the companies have seized the moral high ground and are fighting tenaciously for every inch of it. The regulators want to see a host's address? Sue us. You win in court? We'll appeal. You win on appeal? We'll send you a partial list. You can't prove it's a partial list, so sue us again. The U.S. certainly is not unique in its separation of those charged with making the laws and those charged with enforcing them. However, the separation is extreme in America, where it is perfectly normal to engage in a scorched-earth campaign against those who enforce the law while simultaneously 
running a charm offensive to woo those who make the law. And it's undeniably working. Oh, there have been a few setbacks. Both Uber and Airbnb have lost a few battles with local regulators, and that's either increased their costs or caused them to temporarily pull out of a few markets. But they're making steady progress, and it's almost inevitable now that they will manage to exempt themselves from the relevant regulations and permanently legitimize their businesses. More important, both Uber and Airbnb are now widely used and seen as an accepted part of the economy by most Americans. No local government is going to be able to shut them down. And in fact, I doubt they lose much sleep about these minor setbacks because they have an ace up their sleeve in America. You see, the regulations that they want changed are almost all local and city regulations. Local politicians are the ones with the ties to the taxi industries and that benefit from hotel taxes. As Uber and Airbnb's coffers and power grows, they will increasingly be able to target national politicians. Local regulators in the U.S. will never know what hit them. Now, I want to state again that I'm not making any value judgments here. There are plenty of people on both sides arguing about whether this kind of strategy or this kind of business model benefits society in the long run. That question does not interest me today. My point is that if you want to understand why Uber and Airbnb are failing in Japan, you need to put aside the hype of visionary founders chasing their passion and look at what their business model and their go-to-market playbook actually involve. It's been phenomenally successful in the U.S., but it's failed miserably in Japan and in most of Asia for three key reasons. Number one, most of the world trusts government more than they trust private industry. My libertarian friends in San Francisco find this baffling. In fact, many have called it brainwashing or propaganda when I explain it to them. But it's not. In fact, America is unique in the developed world for their visceral disgust for and distrust of government. It's relatively recent in America. It only goes back a few decades. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that people in Asia actually trust the government. Over a beer or two, Japanese, Taiwanese, Indians, and even Singaporeans will tell you how politicians are crooked and how they're enriching themselves at the expense of the citizens. Now, mistrust of government is pretty much universal, and that's a good thing. Everyone complains that companies with ties to politicians are unfairly awarded contracts. Almost everyone agrees, in the abstract, that regulations are too complex and that taxes are too high. No one really trusts their government. Outside of the U.S., however, people trust private industry even less. Americans seem uniquely credulous when companies claim that they are the real champions of the consumer and that regulations exist primarily to benefit politicians and their cronies. Many take Uber and Airbnb's claims that they are standing up to stifling government regulations at face value. In the rest of the world, however, when Uber drives into town claiming to be the white knight who will fight the government regulators in order to provide more jobs and lower-cost services, 
people simply don't believe them, nor should they. It's a laughable position to take. The U.S. playbook assumes that consumers will come down on the side of the disruptor, but that doesn't automatically happen in Japan. When companies claim that labor protections, environmental laws, tax laws, insurance regulations, and licensing requirements all need to be changed in order for them to do business, well, those companies are viewed with extreme suspicion, particularly foreign companies. Such claims are not met with cheers, but with the question, well, what makes you such a special snowflake? Just declaring that regulations are bad for innovation in general, or for your business in particular, is not enough. It seems that Uber and Airbnb both grossly overestimated the amount of grassroots support and goodwill they would receive when they entered the Japanese market. Since then, both have regrouped and are now taking a more patient and conciliatory approach to winning the hearts and minds of Japan's consumers. They are both taking time to educate consumers and regulators about which regulations should be changed and how such changes would benefit society as a whole. And both companies have even done what would be unthinkable in the U.S. They've signaled their willingness to change their very business model as needed to conform to the respective laws and regulations. However, it's probably already too late for them because of number two. It's not okay to break the law in Japan, or in most of Asia for that matter. All right. More accurately stated, I should say that it's not okay to break the law by yourself in Japan. Anyone who's been to a Japanese movie theater or has seen a baked sweet potato vendor driving around Tokyo with an open fire in the back of a pickup truck understands that a lot of fire regulations are, shall we say, optional here. It's breaking the law by yourself that's the problem. But I hear you say, What are you talking about, Tim? It's not okay to break the law in America. Except, it really is. Oh, sure, America will fine and jail individuals who break the law. But corporate noncompliance is different. In fact, there's a common school of thought in the West that if it's cheaper to violate the regulation than it is to obey it, it is not only okay to break the law, but that the CEO has an actual obligation to his shareholders to break the law. Fines are simply a cost of doing business. No corporate executive is going to get fired for saving his company millions of dollars and having to pay a few thousand dollars in fines. Things don't work quite that way in Japan. Most people don't make a strong distinction between the actions you take as a CEO and the actions you take as an individual. You're either an honest, trustworthy person or you're not. This is not to say that all actors are squeaky clean in Japan. Far from it. There's no shortage of bribery, kickback, and collusion scandals. Well-connected companies get away with all kinds of things. And powerful local businesses will sometimes violate regulations for generations. In fact, regulations in Japan are so numerous and so vague that it's probably impossible to operate a business here without being in violation of something. You see, Japanese regulations, both the laws themselves and the standards by which they are enforced, 
are maddeningly unclear. The way the game is usually played in Japan is to work things out with the relevant regulators before you begin operations. And the regulators can be surprisingly flexible in helping you craft a plan that will comply with how they interpret the law. Sometimes you're not even aware you're even in violation of the law at all until the authorities show up to either discuss it with you, in which case there's still hope, or to simply tell you to stop. Once they tell you to stop, however, your only real option is to apologize for causing the inconvenience and then change your behavior. The vagueness of the law gives everyone involved a certain amount of plausible deniability and the ability to reasonably declare that they're doing everything possible to comply. If you stop right away, the regulators save face, you can claim that you never intended to do anything wrong, and a lot will be forgiven. In many ways, you get one free pass in Japan. Using the U.S. playbook here, however, backfires horribly. Taking on the regulators, filing a lawsuit to get an injunction against their ruling, refusing to turn over documents, gearing up for a PR campaign to convince the public that the laws are bad and should not be enforced. Yeah, not only won't that work, but it will most likely end the career of any CEO that tried it. There is genuine shame and stigma attached to knowingly and publicly violating the law or to having your operation suspended. CEOs in charge of such operations are viewed as untrustworthy, and there is a genuine loss of social standing and prestige. The fact that they were making money for their company doesn't really matter. The Japanese may view the regulators as annoying, but they're not considered the enemy. Loudly declaring your intention to defy them earns you nothing but contempt in Japan. Now, to be fair, Airbnb has tread much more lightly here and have been trying to build a working relationship with the government authorities. But Uber has tried a toned-down version of the American playbook and has been shut down several times. Now, even though both Airbnb and Uber are starting to play the game the right way here, it's probably too late because, number three, the playbook is no longer secret. Uber and Airbnb got to scale in the U.S. because they flew under the radar. By the time the local regulators understood just how disruptive these companies were, and I mean disruptive in both the best and the worst sense of the word, well, they'd become too big for them to easily regulate. Local regulators were not fighting a small, scrappy startup, but a widely popular and massively funded lobbying machine and the local governments are losing. Japanese lawmakers, and those elsewhere in the world, now know how this plays out, and they're acting much more quickly. Actually, I think that window is closed in the U.S. as well. For example, in 2014, a San Francisco company called Monkey Parking launched an app that allowed drivers to auction off the parking spot they were currently occupying to drivers looking for parking. If you don't see why this is a horrifically bad idea, you've probably never had to park in San Francisco. If you have had to park in San Francisco and you still think this is a good idea, well, talk to me in the comments section and we can debate it there.
In any event, within a few weeks of Monkey Parking's release, the city of San Francisco had sent them a cease and desist letter threatening to fine them $2,500 per transaction. They'd petitioned Apple to remove the app from the App Store and introduced legislation specifically banning that business model. Less than a month later, the company was forced out of San Francisco and several other cities preemptively passed legislation banning their operation. Even U.S. regulators have their guard up at this point. Now, actually, the lobbying has started to have an effect in Japan. It's taken a few years, but room sharing and ride sharing are increasingly seen as not only legitimate, but beneficial. National and local governments in Japan and throughout Asia are drafting new laws and changing regulations to accommodate them. Unfortunately, it's too late for Uber. Asian companies are going to dominate the ride-sharing market here. But I think Airbnb still has a solid chance. This being Japan, many aspects of these new regulations are not very clear, and we're entering the phase where companies need to work with the regulators to make it all work. Unlike in the U.S., this doesn't mean lobbying lawmakers and fighting the regulators in court. It means, well, actually working with the regulators and helping them sort all this out. Large, established companies naturally have an advantage here, and that does slow the pace of change. But recently, regulators have been more and more willing to work with startups or groups of startups. However, they're very reluctant to work with companies who have proven they are willing to break the law. And actually, most other companies and consumers have the same reluctance. Knowingly violating the law severely damages your brand in Japan. To wrap up, I'm not arguing about which system is better. I'm not saying that America should be more like Japan or that Japan should be more like America. The point is that companies coming into Japan particularly a company planning on disrupting Japan, needs to understand these differences and come up with a different strategy for the Japanese market. And make no mistake, Japan is not a closed market. Western companies can and have come in and utterly disrupted the way things work here. Microsoft, Salesforce, Facebook, AWS, and many other firms have come in and utterly transformed their markets but all of them were smart enough to leave the U.S. playbook at home. We Americans love the rule breakers. It's so ingrained in our culture that most Americans will tell you with a straight face that no progress is possible at all without breaking the rules. When progress is made without breaking the rules, well, we'll retroactively define some convention or common practice as a rule and then credit our visionary entrepreneur with bravely breaking it. Japan, however, has a much clearer understanding of what a rule is. Defying convention is viewed as risky, sometimes selfish, but, and this gives me hope for the future of Japan, it is increasingly admired. More and more, defying convention to pursue one's own goals is seen as a positive thing. Startups who defy convention to introduce new ways of doing things are welcomed. Breaking a law, however, is something very different. It's not admired, even when the law is a stupid and antiquated one. 
companies who break the law or openly violate regulations are not viewed as engines of innovation or the champions of the middle-class workers, but rather as selfish entities run by people who clearly can't be trusted. A lot of Japanese regulation is maddeningly vague, and the Japanese bureaucracy has far too much influence over how the law is written and how it is interpreted. And there's no doubt that this leads to a lot of corrupt deals that cost the taxpayers billions of dollars a year and also significantly slows down the pace of innovation here. But that's not your fight, nor is it mine. If you really want to disrupt Japan, your success will depend only partially on your product, the local competition, and the economics of the market as a whole. Once you have all that working in your favor, your success will depend on you crafting a strategy that focuses on pushing your competition out of the market, not on trying to play citizens and the government against each other. Okay, so what's new in Japan with America's sharing economy darlings? In a way, so much has changed that I should probably do a whole new show on the current state of the sharing economy in Japan. And if you want to hear that, let me know. If there's enough interest, I'll put it together. Now, Uber has been pretty much crushed in Japan. I mean, I think the new CEO has done a very impressive job in trying to rehabilitate the company and the brand. And Uber Eats is fairly successful here. It's one of the top food delivery services. But Uber's main business has never taken off. They were operating a free service in one rural community. They've started selling software to other taxi companies. And they have a very limited Uber Black offering. But that business never really recovered from the initial scorched earth market entry strategy. In fact, I think one of the reasons that ride-sharing still has not taken hold in Japan, despite SoftBank's massive investments and heavy lobbying, is because of how badly Uber poisoned that well during their market entry. Non-Uber ride-sharing companies have been successful in many parts of Asia, but not Japan. The whole industry has a bad image, and I don't think that's likely to change anytime soon. Airbnb, on the other hand, played the game better. They weren't combative. They worked with the regulators. But things did not work out as they'd hoped. When the new Mimpaku laws were enacted last year, it placed some very limiting restrictions on what rooms could be listed. Now, how much of this was a result of the hotel industry lobbying and how much of it was due to genuine concerns of people living near the Airbnb rentals, well, that's, that's a topic for another day. In any event, Airbnb complied with the law and removed about 80% of their listings and actually started enforcing the new requirements rather than just pushing that responsibility onto their hosts. In doing so, they've maintained a reasonably good image here in Japan. So, Airbnb lost round one. But if they're playing the long game, and they really seem to be, they just might get another bite at that apple. With so many things about the Japanese travel industry being disrupted, 
Airbnb just might pull it off in the end. And I hope they do. If you want to know more about Japanese startups and innovation, come by disruptingjapan.com or visit our Facebook or LinkedIn sites. I'd love to hear from you there. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.